think the community that that I'm invested in, um, the Chinatown International District community, I, I want to answer those questions with my people. We can't let the city or the state kind of polarize our community, and for us to reject poor people living in the neighborhood because I think Chinatowns in across this country and across the world have been kind of havens for poor people and new immigrants. It's a place where people find some kind of community and some kind of home. My cousin's family had a hotel on 3rd and Washington, and my grandma lived there, and my cousins lived, my cousins and aunt and uncle lived there, and I stayed overnight every weekend I was there, or I'd stay in um, International District, Chinatown on Maynard Street. My cousins lived there too, and then I had some more cousins on Beacon Hill, so kind of all the weekends we were with family in that kind of way. So in talking about cultural homes, those are those are all the places that I feel are, you know, just a part of part of me. Bush Garden was where a lot of the high school kids used to work, you know, so we knew a bunch of people from other schools like Franklin and Rainer Beach and Cleveland that, you know, we were all worked in the same place and all of the the waitresses were were somebody's mom. So that was a whole nother community of people that, you know, besides the people that worked there, there was a whole, all the customers that came and ate there. And my family was one of those. When we had Mother's Day, that's where everybody went for Mother's Day. Or, you know, there was a lot of community events down there. So, so many ties, I guess, is what I, you know, really want to emphasize, that what it, what it meant for me outside of growing up on Queen Anne, Hill, that, that the weekend stuff and their connections to families and to have that cultural home was really, really powerful. You know, used to walk down from the language school down King Street and stop at all the Chinese grocery stores and buy ginger and ingamoy. And, <laughs> you know, that was our weekly routine, you know, hung out down there. And those are, you know, all really special, special memories for me. So... That was a lot of my early childhood. My mom enrolled me into ballet at Hangta Dance Academy. I didn't exactly like doing ballet. I don't think kids really like being forced to do anything. And so my mom incentivized me with ice cream. And in the building, there was a little like shop that had bakery goods, but the like place that was so wonderful was this place called Monhe Bakery, which was easily accessible. It was just like two blocks down. They had the best generic ice cream. And I always got the strawberry one with the very cheap tasting cone. Like the ones that I feel like really resonates with the dollar store kind of quality and that was like everything to me and there was cocktail buns and I was like yes yes and then like if I could I would eat 30 of them. Truman Tofu is a restaurant on 12 and Jackson that is owned by Tanya. She's a um, um, really awesome. She's a Vietnamese auntie and um you know, operates a restaurant, but also has been doing these mutual aid days with um, the egg rolls. And that's just the cutest name in the world. Um, and the egg rolls are um, a group of youth in the neighborhood and beyond who come and do mutual aid every Sunday 
for unhoused folks in the area. I don't think we can mutual aid away the, you know, structural oppression of, you know, poverty and white supremacy, but it is a really important component in sustaining and supporting our communities in the meantime. And um, yeah, there are a lot of Asian American youth. It's a multiracial um, coalition or group of um, folks who are doing this work. And yeah, I'm really grateful for them and just want to shout out that, you know, young people are often leading the way. Believe it or not, the uh, the Starbucks on 23rd and Jackson <laughs> was uh, d- definitely unique for me. And, it, you know, even though right now Starbucks is a little bit problematic as, as far as how uh, people of color and especially black people are, are treated. Um, at, at the same time, you know, I, I, I just felt this sense of, of comfort and community in that Starbucks. And from what I heard recently, either it's no longer there or it's going to be shutting down soon. And uh, that was was definitely upsetting for me, you know, when when I when I found that out. Uh, and and actually, just that that whole area of Twenty uh, Third and Jackson, I remember that that there was this, I I guess you would would call it a uh, a strip mall, you know, that that was there. And I would would see that every time I would um, get ready to model at uh, Pratt Fine Arts, you know, be, because it was was really close to uh, Pratt. And, uh, you know, the, there, there would be the uh, Red Apple store, you know, that's no longer there. <laughs> you know, the um, redevelopment of 23rd and Promenade into um, the space it is now that now has an Amazon Fresh versus the Red Apple being a place where people met spontaneously and interacted with one another and, and could buy, you know, certain foods that they couldn't buy other places has been completely erased. So yes, there is still a grocery there, but it's much more impersonal. It doesn't serve the same function as a red apple did. And I would say that some of the other new businesses are similar in that respect, that they have a different audience. You just can't linger. We'll just use Starbucks as an example. Before the immigrant Africans came in to the city and claimed the central district as part of their own. You know, black Americans also had spaces similar to Pal Barnett Park where they would just gather and linger. And because of these new residents who feel uncomfortable with that, they put up, they try to put up ordinances or some type of restrictions or some kind of, you know, um, well, yeah, I guess uh, either a formal law or some kind of restriction, even though it's baseless, on people just gathering and lingering. And that that's what happened at Starbucks at 23rd and Jackson. The African immigrant community in particular, who used to come there, drink their coffee, hang out, have conversations, were then suddenly restricted from doing that. And so in that sense, you take away these opportunities for people to, um, to be in community. Some black leaders in Seattle, you know, in Seattle, I don't know if they're all in the CD, everybody's 
uh, priced out now. But anyway, black leaders have took it upon themselves to get a discrimination suit going with the Biden administration. And in that, they allege everything, you know, discrimination in construction, discrimination in housing, police brutality, just all of that. So I do know that the Department of Justice is investigating Seattle's housing situation and I guess all the other stuff too. Basically, the city is telling us that they want us to make highest and best use of our property. They'll fine us for not doing it, but they'll fine us for doing it too. So we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. And all it is, is just so that they could get us to sell our property. Um, all of these, <laughs> all of these homeowners in the urban villages, and that's what they're called now. I didn't, I don't know a lot about the urban villages because I was living in Atlanta when that came up, but the urban village is the CD and South End, basically. And all these homeowners in the CD and South End are getting forced that, that they, they want to force us out of our homes and just basically steal our homes is what it is. When I think about Seattle, I think about the really weird place that the city has put artists in. There's a meme that shows a white person with a mullet and it says, when this person shows up in your neighborhood, your rent is about to go up. And I laugh about that because a lot of my friends were white people with mullets when I first came to Seattle. And they too can't afford Seattle anymore either. You know, when this rapid, just like gentrification on steroids started to happen the last 10 years, a lot of like venues and spaces that we can go to, to have shows and have portrait readings and whatever the case may be, has started to shut down. Um, Elisha Johnson used to own Fair. I don't know if you knew about that, but it was, um, man, it was, it was a vibe. I mean, they had food, they had DJ nights, they had, if I needed to, you know, if I want to do an event, I can, hey, can we do an event there? And that was also true for Hidmo. Um, and they just start to dwindle. Like they were no longer around and it was hard to find a space to, you know, the art scene was just, at least in Seattle, for the black and BIPOC community, it was just dwindling. So I'm super thankful for Wanawari. I love their um, silent discos and the exhibits and, you know, I've taken <laughs> yoga classes there. I mean, you know, it's just, um, Wanawari, you know, maybe I'm a little biased, but that place gives me so much joy. It's such a privilege to be part of um, that space.